Hello, welcome to the Revive for the Journey podcast, where we give you this week's message from Cove Church. We pray that it blesses you and helps you grow deeper in your journey with Christ. Enjoy. Well, hello again, Cove Church. So great to be with you today as we continue our series that we are calling Love Theory. Uh, We're exploring this idea of how God's stories around and in our lives ultimately add up to God's love for us. And today we talk about the story that is written in the valley of our lives. Uh, when I was first married, when Paul and I first got married, we, I think, both had expectations of one another. That happens in marriage. And, and those expectations ultimately got challenged by reality. Uh, like I'm sure for Paula, her ideal expectation was to have a loving husband who could eat quietly and never roll away in bed and, and steal the covers off of her. I think that was her expectation. And that was not what happened. And she has learned to love me anyway in the midst of that, because obviously those are my only flaws. That's all she had to overcome. (laughs) Now for me, my expectation was that my wife, although not a Fisher person when I met her, I thought she would eventually become one, because why not? Why wouldn't she become a Fisher person? I mean, it's so great. You get to smell like fish, and then you get to be in life-threatening circumstances. I mean, who doesn't want to sign up to be a Fisher person? Person. I thought she would be on board. In fact, I did, as many of you know, take her fishing on our honeymoon. Rented a boat, was out there, rented it for a half day. We're out there for two hours. She's like, I think I'm done fishing. I said, sweetie, we've got the boat for four hours. We've only been out here for two. She's like, well, I don't care. I think I'm done fishing. I said, sweetie, nobody fishes for just two hours. She said, we do. And uh, <laughs> that was the last time, I believe, we ever went fishing together, some 28 years ago. We both had lots to adjust to when it came to this new relationship we found ourselves in. And the same is absolutely true when it comes to our relationship with Jesus. That we must ultimately match our expectations to the truth of who Jesus is. Which is great news because we're told in Ephesians that God is able to do more than we can ask or imagine. That God will overperform in our lives, but we must also make sure that we are seeking God's best, not the limited view of what we see as our best. I was talking with a friend recently about what we felt was, has perhaps been painted wrongly in the church, especially the church in America. This idea that if I follow Jesus, everything in my life gets easier. Everything in my life gets more perfect and there's no more problems. Just follow Jesus and it all just turns out that way. And that is simply not true. It's not true for those we see in scripture. It's not true for those we see in history. It's not true of us. But in America, what do we do? We love to package stuff and brand it and promote it with engaging production And somewhere along the way, Jesus ends up presented as a spiritual vending machine. One that comes with a money-back guarantee, by the way. And it goes like, God, if you don't do this how I want you to do it, then I won't love you anymore. That's how it plays out. And that misses the point of what God is trying to do with each and every one of us. 
Jesus himself guaranteed that we would have problems in this life. And he even seemed to indicate that we might get a few more problems as a result of following him. He said, I come to bring a sword to your life. Huh. And so it would be such a misrepresentation of relationship with God to view Jesus like some kind of genie. Where the truth of relationship with, with God is this, that the one who formed the stars wants to meet me amidst the chaos of my life with a peace and a hope that could never be stolen from me by anyone. In fact, often how I know that my peace comes from God is that it takes place when nothing in my life says I should have it. When so much of my life is on fire and yet there is a genuine peace in my soul. That's the gift that only Jesus can bring. That's the gift Jesus wants to bring to us and that is the point. The truth is, we only find ourselves coming to that conclusion when life isn't what we thought it was supposed to be. That's how we discover that kind of peace. I have spoken in my life with many people who say, you know, I love the experience of meeting God in that mountaintop time, you know. For some, it's an actual literal mountaintop. They go hiking to the top of a mountain, and this is where I meet God, and it's the, the vast views of God's creation. That's how I meet God. For others, it's the mountaintop experiences of life we're so excited about. You know, I, I get that promotion, or I, I accomplish that goal, or I, I go to that camp, or I, I win that Oscar. These are the mountaintops of life. It's not hard to thank God then. It's not hard to see God then from the mountain. At the Academy Awards, everybody thanks God. It's not hard. It's easy then. See, I don't need God's help to see God on the mountain, but I do need God's help to see God in the valley. When it's foggy, when it's gray, when it's cold, I mean, last Sunday, it slushed in Eugene. It slushed on us. It wasn't snow. It just slushed on us. That's gray and cold. But here's the thing. If our entire relationship with God is built on going from mountaintop to mountaintop, then our walk with Jesus will be reduced to the endless pursuit of the next high. I've just got to get to the next mountaintop. Missing altogether the fruit that can only grow in the valley. Mountaintop experiences are great. Don't get me wrong, they are great, but we live life in the valley, don't we? We literally, here in Eugene, live in the valley. Crops grow in the valley. Cattle graze in the valley. Communities grow in the valley. People come together in the valley. The last time I checked on the summit of Mount Everest, there wasn't a Holiday Inn built there. No strip malls, no salt and straw ice cream. None of that is there. Great view, but you don't live on the mountain. And so the quest for those who follow Christ is how do I meet God in the valley? That's what we're going to talk about today. And we're going to engage that question by looking at a passage often referred to around Easter where a group of people who love Jesus deeply wondered at this moment if they had fallen off of God's radar. But if we look closely, 
we will see not only that Jesus had never left them, but that Jesus was in fact drawing them closer than ever before amidst their deepest valley. So how do we embrace the story God's right, God writes in the valleys of our life? Here's the first thing. Look for God's evidence in the valley. Let's read this passage together. John 20, 1 to 23. It's a little long, but it's a great story. So let's read it together. Big voices right where you are. Go. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, and the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the, the disciples went back to where they were staying. All right. Remember, the disciples were pretty low at this point in time. They had seen Jesus crucified, watched that unfold before them. He is buried in a tomb, and they came away going, it wasn't supposed to be this way. And I am struck by this phrase in the passage. Mary went to the tomb while it was still dark. It's an incredibly dark time, but it says that Mary went to the tomb while it was still dark. Not while it was clear, not while it was light, not while the walk would be easy. You know, there'd be sunshine and birds chirping and brooks babbling. No, not like that. It was dark and she goes to seek Jesus when it's dark. She goes looking for God amidst the deepest valley of her life. In this case, she's just seeking the body of Jesus. So there's the question for us. What do we do when it's dark? Because Mary went looking for Jesus when it got dark. I'm realizing as I get older how impactful low light is <laughs> for me. Uh, sometimes I'll get up in the morning and, and Paula will have set the living room up with nice atmospheric lighting to do devotions by. And it's, you know, it's, it's just quiet and, and lovely. And I'll go to read my Bible and I can't see it. I have to get my phone out and bring that harsh light so I can read the words. Light is becoming pretty important to me. <laughs> as I get older, when I'm fishing. I used to be I could change lures, change flies anytime, night or day, you know, throughout the whole course of the day. But now I have lights that I carry with me and magnifying lenses and I'm trying to, to hold the fly up into the sky so I can see where to, where to tie it onto. And I'm choosing flies that are way bigger than I want to use because the odds are better of me actually being able to tie that on because I can see it. Everything now is more difficult in the dark. Yet here we see that the darkness didn't keep Mary from seeking Jesus. In fact, it was because of the darkness she intentionally goes looking for God, looking for answers, looking what is going on here. And could that same heart be true in us? Mary, in the midst of her valley, 
time. She gets up, she, she puts on her sandals, she wraps herself in a shawl, she gets a lantern, and she takes a journey to the tomb of Christ. She was actively looking for God when it was dark. Friend, in, in your dark time, maybe today is a dark time, in your lonely time, in your uncertain time, what would it look like to get up, to put on your shoes, to get your coat, and actively look for God there? Maybe that's a metaphor, maybe that's not. Maybe you literally do those things. But what we all know is that we don't have to work to experience the dark, but it takes effort to seek God amidst the dark. And that's exactly what Mary did. And guess what? Because she did that, she sees something different. Mary discovers the stone has been rolled away from the tomb. She's the first one ever in humanity to see it. Why? Because she was the first one to go looking for it. Right there in the dark. She races back to the disciples. She's knocking on the door. Everybody get up. Something crazy has happened. The stone in front of the tomb, it is rolled away. And they come out and they're rubbing their eyes. And Peter's got a little bed head. And, and they're like, what? And they finally comprehend Mary's words. And Peter and the other disciple, we know it to be John, they run to the tomb. Verify this. And again, in the midst of their valley, they are actively looking for God. And guess what? Because they're looking for God, they find something from God. John 20, 6 and 7. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. They found some new information. They, they, they discovered God was still working, that this was not a robbery. This was no accident. No, why? Because robbers don't, robbers don't fold up the sheets when they steal the bed. It wasn't just mayhem. It was purposeful. This was intentional. It was part of the plan. All these things are all folded up nicely over here. Robbers don't do that. Now, they still don't understand everything, but they knew enough now to keep looking for God. Here's, here's the thing. God does not always give every answer to what we are looking for. God at times gives us just enough of the answer to ensure we keep looking. God was showing them this story is not finished, and they saw the evidence when they went looking in the dark. Jesus invites us amidst our moments of confusion, our moments of cloudiness, to go on a holy treasure hunt. I'm looking for God here. And God's promise is that if you seek me, you will find me. Look harder for me. Don't give up. Don't remove yourself from the rest of this story. Actively look for God, especially when it's dark. We get to look for God's evidence in the valley. That's the first thing. Here's the second. Listen for God's truth in the valley. We get to listen for God's truth in the valley. Let's continue the passage. Big voices go. Now Mary stood outside of the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? Well, they have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, 
Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. So Mary's crying. The body's gone. She looks in the tomb. There's angels there. They ask, hey, why are you crying? And she's like, why do you think? They've taken my Lord. I don't know where they've taken the body. And, he, and she turns around and she sees Jesus, but doesn't know it's Jesus. So unfolds this interesting conversation. Woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? That's what Jesus says. Her response is funny. You know, it must be the gardener. Did you happen to notice a body around here while you were replanting stuff? You know, might, might it, could you like set him over by the wheelbarrow perhaps? Did you see a body when you were working in the garden? You, is there a chance you mulched him up in here somehow? You know, it's a very impersonal conversation at this point until Jesus changes everything by doing one thing. He calls her by name, Mary. And in that moment, it says, she turned towards him. It's so simple, I think we often miss it. In the midst of our disappointments, we're left with a choice. Either to turn away from Christ or to turn towards Christ. To allow Christ to be near us in our disappointment or allow those disappointments to take us farther away from God. I remember uh, fishing the Lord Deschutes River with a friend, and often we would uh, end up hiking back in the dark up, up the trail because we'd fish to the very end of light. And usually with us, we would end up with one flashlight that was barely working. And that's what we ended up there. One flashlight, very low on battery. So it was dim, but it was a something. And so we had that to go back with on the trail. And it's there going back on the trail, hiking back, that we heard the sound. The sound of a rattlesnake. They come out at night on the Lord of Shoots. It's cooler. That's a very unnerving sound. When it's dark and you don't know exactly where it is, you just know it's nearby. And you hear that rattling sound. Very, very unnerving. So we finally kind of picked our way. Okay, I think he's over here somewhere. We'll move this way. And then for the rest of the time, he had the flashlight and I was on him like a spider monkey for the rest of the time back, all the hike back. I'm like, I'm not getting anywhere away from this light. I'm going to be as close to this light as possible. I'm going to be near it. The light is where it's safe. To follow close was to be safe. I'm convinced that one of the most dangerous ways to live as a Christ follower is to follow Jesus at a distance. And I know I've done it. Maybe you've done it. There's a passage in Luke 22, 54. They're, they're leading Jesus away. They've arrested him. And it says there that Peter followed him at a distance. And it's there that we see Peter deny Jesus three times. We are most at risk when we follow Jesus at a distance. That we're close enough to think we're not totally lost, but far enough away that God has no ability to guide us. We haven't given God that permission. 
That is the worst place to be, the worst place to live. It's this horrible in-between zone, just enough of the illness to keep us from getting the real thing. Now, I suppose that's good for vaccines, but it's really not good with Jesus. Yet in our disappointments, we are tempted to do just that. No, we wouldn't reject Jesus outright, but just a bit more distant, just a little less personal, just a little less intentional in my relationship. Still, yeah, I'm spending some time with God, you know, we talk when I drive, you know, I still go to church a bit, I, I, I still love Jesus, we're just not really that close, you know. And you have to think, in what relationship does that make sense? Oh, man, I am totally in love with my wife. Oh, man, totally love that woman. But I don't talk to her. <laughs> I mean, sure, not a lot of conflict would happen there. But how can you say I totally love this person if I never am with them? If I'm never in relationship? See, declaring a relationship and living in a relationship are two very different things. And I can click the box that says I'm a Christian on my taxes. It doesn't mean I'm in a close relationship with Christ. But sadly, disappointment and confusion tempts us to operate like that, to follow God that way. Yet here, Mary shows us the way forward. In the midst of her disappointment, she turns towards Jesus. So here it is. In the midst of your disappointment, turn to Jesus. Invite Jesus closer, because when Mary did that, she saw Jesus for who Jesus really is and was. She turns to him, not away from him, and that made all of the difference for her, and it will make all of the difference for us. Whatever you're walking through today, Listen for the voice of Jesus and turn towards his voice in response. Listen for God's truth in the valley. It's the second thing. Here's the last thing. Lean on God's presence in the valley. Let's finish this great story. Big voices go. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Remember, they were pretty defeated at this time. In fact, they, they had all, what they had walked through had ground them down to the point that they were now just hiding out, doors locked, just huddled together because they, they just couldn't take another hit. They, they were just, they were just so, they just wanted to make it, just survive. And Jesus does this crazy appearing act right in their midst, just poof, he shows up, right? And doesn't go through the door, just pays hey, right there, you know? And uh, it says, first thing he says is peace, obviously, because this is the kind of thing that could make you soil your robes. Uh, like, whoa, you're just there. I mean, that's a little scary. And uh, Jesus gives them something that they could never give to themselves, something they could never make for themselves. He gives them God's Holy Spirit, 
actually breathes the Holy Spirit into them. The outflow of that being peace in their lives and the ability to forgive. Huh. And when you, when you break it down, isn't that really what all of us need in life? Peace and the ability to forgive for what's happened. Here's how I see what happened to the disciples because I know in seasons it, it happens to us, doesn't it? At least I can at least attest to experiencing this. Um, maybe for you it's a season that moves beyond correction, beyond pruning as we've talked about recently. And it's a season where you take shot after shot in life, and ultimately you feel like you've been broken down to a powder. There's nothing left. And that's where the disciples were, and that's at times where we are. We're just a powder. And it's there in those times that Jesus walks right past the doors that we have locked to keep the world out. And Jesus says... I'm here to bring you peace and the power of the Holy Spirit to forgive. And into that dry powder of our lives, Jesus pours the living water of the Holy Spirit. And it's almost like in that, he mixes the water of the Holy Spirit with the dry powder of our lives. And it's like together now, Jesus says, you know what I can do? I can make cement out of this. <laughs> I can reforge you now into a vessel of noble use, a vessel that can overcome the world and make a difference, a, a vessel durable to the things of this life that can be shaped and remade. That's what began in the disciples, and that's what can begin in us if we would choose not to lean anymore on what we can do, but on what Jesus can do. Everything can change right there in the valley of our lives. So lean on God's presence in the valley. I'll wrap up with this. I used to think that life was all about fixing the problems around me until there was no problems left, and then I would be at peace. And trying to achieve this sort of miraculous state of lofty peace and perfect relationship that all things were good in my world. And there have even been a few times in my life that I thought that's what I had done. I'd fixed every problem so everything was good. Everything was at peace and that lasted about 28 minutes until I discovered that never was my world fully at peace even in that time. I just didn't even know yet what had fallen apart. It just hadn't gotten to me yet. The truth is, in life, something is always going wrong because our world is very fallen. It's very broken. However, there is a God who loves to meet us in the midst of a fallen and broken world and to begin to write an amazing story of redemption in our lives. That part of God's love theory is this. Great valleys produce great fruit. Perhaps today is a day that you could seek the evidence of God in your valley and you would see it because you go looking for it. Maybe you'd learn to hear God's truth amidst your disappointment, drawing closer to God instead of drifting farther away. And for each of us, we have a chance to experience God's presence 
even in the midst of our greatest defeats, when we feel like we're at our end, that's where Jesus begins. This is how we can see God in the valley. And I promise if we would look, if we would listen, and if we would lean on God, there are no limits to the story that God wants to write. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. To stay connected with all things Cove Church, visit our website, covechurchpnw.com or on all social media platforms at Cove Church PNW. We'll see you next time.